0: is Jessica Strasser. Hi everyone, I'm Jessica Strasser. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. We have a huge treat today. I'm here at the main library with Laurie Holtz Anderson, New York Times bestselling author whose writing spans young readers, teens, and with her latest work, adults. Since the publication 20 years ago of her groundbreaking novel, Speak, in which a teenage girl becomes isolated in the aftermath of her rape, Larry has become known for the unflinching ways she writes about and advocates for survivors of sexual assault. Speak was a National Book Award finalist, as was another of her novels, called Chains, which was also shortlisted for the prestigious Carnegie Medal. Combined, her books have sold more than 8 million copies. Laurie was selected by the American Library Association for the 2009 Margaret A. Edwards Award and has been honored for her battles for intellectual freedom by the National Coalition Against Censorship and the National Council of Teachers of English. She regularly speaks about the need for diversity in publishing and is a member of the Leadership Council for RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. She lives in Philadelphia but is here in Cincinnati on tour for her new book, Shout, which we'll be talking about in depth today. Shout is a poetry memoir that is as vulnerable as it is rallying, as timely as it is timeless. Inspired by her fans and enraged by how little in our culture has changed in the two decades since Speak was published, she wrote Shout as a free verse love letter to all the people with courage to say, Me Too and Time's Up. The book is a collection of reflections, rants, and calls to action woven between deeply personal stories from her life that she's never written about before. Having had the privilege to read a coveted early copy in advance of publication, I have to say that I was blown away by the power of the truth in these pages. Laurie, welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. Thank you so much for making the time on your busy book tour to join us here today.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much.
0: I'd love to start, if you're willing, by having you read a selection from Shout to give our listeners a taste of this book that really
1: sort of defies description. Would you do us the honor? Sure. I'm actually, a lot of the poems in this book um, deal with sexual violence, both what I experienced and all the stories of what I've experienced. So before we go any farther, I want to just offer um, a care and concern warning to our listeners some people like to call them trigger warnings, but I think care and concern comes closer to my approach to it, and that is we're going to be talking frankly about um, some, some hard topics. So um, you, if that feels like that you're feeling vulnerable um, and the topic of that might, might not be a comfortable one for you, um, you know you, know, you, know you uh, <laughs> phantom listener out there in the world, um, and just know that I'm holding you in my heart. Um, since I think we're probably going to have more writers than usual listening to your podcast, I thought I would read a short poem um, about writing. Uh, because when I was young, I, I always wrote for fun, but I never thought I would be a writer, a writer. And so my path was a really twisted one to get here. So can I read it now? Yes. All right, here we go. This is called Cave Painting. And it references a teacher in the second line. that That was my second grade teacher. I'd been scribbling ever since Mrs. Shidi Shea taught me haiku. Stories, poems, fairy tales, mysteries, gothic nightmares, and occasionally happy endings. When I had babies, I tried to write for them too. I sucked, but persisted, resisting the temptation to quit. I wrote picture books that sucked so bad. They were rejected over and over and over again. But I persisted, enlisting new friends, all of us thirsting to write and be read. I pounded out novels and nonfiction, major suckage, constantly, appropriately rejected. I freaking persisted, insisting I could figure it out. The stories, the words, the phrases coming out of the mists persisted. Even when I wanted to pack it in, give it up, and get out, my existence insisted on listening to the voices in my head, distantly cheering my ambition. I tried a new thing, revision, mm-hmm. and persisted, dismissing my doubts, risking my pride, demystifying a process that consisted of untwisting the trysting words in my brain pen and convincing them to behave inspiration and craft slowly melding into this, the consistent beats of my words against the drum. I love that so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so I think to talk
0: properly about how this book came to be, we need to stop and look back for some context. Um, Speak started as a uh, speaking of trying revision, Mm. started as a small publication with modest expectations, (laughs) Um, went on to win countless awards, sell millions of copies, be adapted for film. Every high school English teacher and high school librarian knows this book, not to mention the students. And I read it fresh just last week, and I was struck that it does not feel like a book that was written 20 years ago. Um, In fact, it feels timely. And it occurs to me that you're probably in the minority of authors in hoping that your own book might one day start to feel at least a little bit antiquated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think I am. Yeah. I mean,
0: uh, culturally speaking, what do you think has changed since Speak was
1: published and
0: what has stayed the same?
1: Well, not nearly enough has changed. Um, We've seen some uh, progress. We've seen some progress um, in, in terms of the acceptance and embrace and celebration of LGBTQ people, people who identify outside the binary, the you know, mm-hmm. genderqueer, transgendered folks. Um, that 20 years ago felt like that was much farther off than it turned out to be. And that's awesome. So that's the good news. Um, We now have social media that allows us to find each other, to find communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be positive, but then we all know the downside of social media. Um, And I think, you know, I've been talking to teenagers for 20 years, and I don't think, I know. I know that things are harder for them than they were 20 years ago. A lot of that has to do with... um, kind of broken kids using social media as a tool to bully, harass, uh, demean, objectify other people. Um, and the other thing that I wish more parents would wake up to is how many of our kids are learning about sex from online pornography. Um, and, and you know they're not like using credit cards to buy ethically produced pornography. So they're getting the free stuff, which is really um, often not ethically produced and uh often has a lot of scenes that portray nonconsensual sex uh, the average age i'm told that boys start watching internet porn is 11 years old oh my gosh <clears throat> and um and so if and when young boys and teenagers don't have parents and other responsible adults in their lives that can balance out that behavior with constant and you know appropriate conversations about consent and healthy sexuality then the I've I've talked to victims of rape who have been raped by a boy who thought that non-consensual sex was how you did it. Um, so, wow, we have not come very far, and in some ways it feels like things are are more dangerous.
0: I suppose yeah. If it were to be updated, it would be to add that social media aspect, which would make it uh, exponentially.
1: Well, we actually I did a graphic novel version of Speak. That's and I wrote the adaptation in 2015, and then it took a few years for the amazing artist Emily Carroll to uh, illustrate it. That came out last year. And so I tweaked the story a little tiny bit to give Melinda um, a cell phone in, um, uh, in, in one scene, and then we had computers kind of in the background. But it would have really taken the story off 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 course if I had really made that an essential element of the story. So we just touched on it briefly.
0: So what inspired you to write Shout Now? Uh Why did Now feel like the time to write it?
1: Uh, Many of the stories that that the poems are about in Shout are the kinds of things that I've been talking to audiences of teenagers and college students um, for 20 years. Because I realized quickly when I started to present in schools that kids needed me to be honest about what had happened to me Mm -hmm. and about what I understand about um, sexual violence and rape mythology, all the misconceptions that so many people have. And as, you know, the Me Too movement started uh, in 2006 by that wonderful, brilliant activist Tarana Burke. Uh, But in the fall of 2017, some actresses in Hollywood kind of were able to give it increased visibility. Um, with the you know so there was this little bit of renewal of conversation and then the time's up movement began as well and then bam came the backlash you know just uh, men who for some reason feel threatened by the concept that they're not allowed to rape women which is certainly not all men um, but there were some really high figure guys that have pushed back very hard in really misogynist ways and that made me angry. And the, all of the poems in this book came out of that rage.
0: It is angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, as a memoir, yeah. the content of Shout is deeply personal, and it had to have brought back a lot of personal memories. Um, but Time Magazine recently did a profile on you, And they pointed out what a fearless writer you are and have always been, uh, not shying away from difficult topics. But shout is not just fearless, it is angry. And with some verses in particular, I could feel my own rage boiling in my blood as I read. I'm curious about the relationships between anger and fear when it comes to this topic in particular, it seems so tangled. Um, Was there anything that surprised you either topically, emotionally, thematically, and how much you found you did or did not want to explore on the page oh. as
1: you got started on this? Oh, that's a great question. Um, for those of you who care about um, some of the craft elements, so I knew I was angry, um, I was supposed to be writing a novel for my editor, and I called her up, And I said, so, (laughs) about that novel that she'd been waiting for. And I said, (laughs) well, and the novel had nothing to do with this. I said, I've got a great idea. How about if I write a memoir slash manifesta, right? And it'll be about how angry I am, and it'll all be in poetry, which is not the conversation that any editor (laughs) ever wants to have with a writer. But Kendra Levin, my editor at Viking, was very patient and very she's an extraordinary editor she said sure go ahead do what you need to do and so the writing of it in the first kind of wave was just all these jumble of poems about my life the life of my parents and my grandparents a little bit which didn't make it into the book and then all these stories that I've heard from survivors the stories have been uh their truth told slant they've been modified to protect the identities of the people um And the writing process was ultimately very freeing. I mean, I've known I've been angry. I've been, you know, a woman walking around with a flaming chainsaw in my head most of the time because I've listened to so many tens of thousands, I think, at this point of survivors. Last night in Boston, I stopped counting after 10 women had wept on my shoulders. It's very, very common. And I consider that a a huge gift when people want to share their stories. So I think more than many people I know how prevalent sexual violence is in the lives of us, of our women, Um, but also we need to also pay attention to the victims of sexual violence that are male. Most of them are hurt before they're 12, and for as difficult as it can be for women to speak up about this, I think men face other challenges. And now we're, we're seeing profound levels of uh, violence against transgendered people. On college, camp- college campuses, um, transgendered people have a higher rate, um, a, a bit larger chance of being sexually assaulted than even women do. Wow. Yeah, a lot of pain out there.
0: Yeah. Well, with a collection like this, I am curious how authors decide what to include. Um, So first of all, you were writing in verse, (laughs) as you said, which is something you typically do. No. How did you decide not just on the form, but the scope and the structure, how to arrange the book and what to put in and and what to keep out? I'm curious what the cutting room floor looked
1: like. It was pretty. It was uh, there was like. Piles on the cutting room file floor really? is pretty deep, and I, I think writing processes are quite individual. Everyone has to have to develop their own style and approach to the work, and for me at least, that approach can vary dramatically from book to book. For this book, I just kind of unscrewed the top of my head and let things pour out, in a literally a tsunami of, of words at first, um, and I was just scribbling everything. Um, and then then i and i kept on sending everything to my editor who probably didn't even look at it because she knew that i was just in this throes of needing to write just and in batches just percent. in batches yeah. yep and i was not thinking about structure at all i didn't have i didn't understand i didn't have any perspective on what i was doing and i didn't really even i wasn't clear about my own what what i was trying to do i was just writing poetry about that kind of centered around some experiences and and some themes, and then once I kind of got that all cooled down, um, then the then uh, K- uh, Kendra and I had several conversations about how to approach this. So the structuring of it was that kind of cool intellectual editing head was was months and months and months after the beginning of the writing process.
0: Hmm. How long you, you said earlier before we began that this came out fast?
1: Oh, relatively, yeah. The- oh, I got. I buckled down. I mean, I had scribbled some things in October, but in November of 2017, I really hit it hard. Um, and it was done by June, for the most part. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty fast. That's pretty and plus, fast. I was on the road a lot, and I I was working on another book last year, too. And that includes revision and
0: everything? Yeah. Wow. Um,
1: I didn't sleep much last year.
0: Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> uh, There's a series of poems in the book in which you recount your rape at the age of 13. Um, And now we look at that and say, well, that's clearly what inspired Speak. Absolutely. Uh, But when Speak was first released, that's not something you talked about until years um, into the book becoming this icon.
1: So what happened was um, when I was raped because of my family dynamics, which is why I explore those a little bit in the book, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody for 23 years. And the only reason I, I went into therapy and wound up telling my therapist is that 20, after 23 years, my struggles with depression and PTSD had overwhelmed me. And I was not being a great mom to my children. And it's often we can, we, we're, we can only turn to try to get help when we realize we're failing in one of our roles. I think a lot of women struggle with that. And so... I told my therapist she was amazing. Um, it took a long time before I could trust her enough to tell her. And then um, oh, about six months after I disclosed that to her, the idea for this book kind of cropped up. It woke me up one night. I actually had a bad dream and that, that was the character who became Melinda. So Speak the Novel is about 10% of my experience. Um, I borrowed, we often do this when we're writing, right? I borrowed my emotional truth. But the details, for example, of her attack, the details of her life in the high school and how she reacts, and all that's completely fictional. Um, and I was only prepared to talk about the book in terms of the craft and the literary. What I was trying to make literary in the novel until I started to visit high schools. And I, the kids didn't want to talk about metaphors or themes or symbolism. The kids wanted to know what happened and did it happen to me. And I quickly realized that to be a responsible adult, I was called to show them what I went through. We have to, we, we, God, we lie to our kids so much, and we paint this perfect picture of adulthood and success. And really, we're all still kind of 15-year-olds inside, and we're all still struggling with our messes. And I think if we can drop our barriers, and art is the greatest way to do that, and not be ashamed of who we are and what happened. Um, We free our kids up, and we give them the chance to live better lives than we had. So that's when all of this started.
0: And so, you know, keeping in mind that you started out as a fiction writer, (laughs) to have gone on to not only share your story, but as you mentioned earlier, you've had thousands of readers feel compelled to share their stories with you. How has that affected you as a writer, and what have you learned from those
1: interactions? Well, I actually um, had—I was a journalist before I started writing fiction. I I. didn't—there you go, see? (laughs) I didn't study it. I sort of fell into it. I I seem to fall into most things in my life, just kind of bumble around. Um, And then it was when I was—I was a freelancer for magazines and newspapers uh, when I started to try to write books for kids when my own children were small. So I think that was a great a great entry point for me, mm-hmm. um, and I totally forgot your question.
0: Uh, how what you learned from these interactions with readers? Oh
1: and yeah. Your
0: own. So you sort of started with nonfiction,
1: went to fiction, went to fiction, and, and, even and now up. I'm back. <laughs> now I'm back. Yeah, and and it's fun. It's, you know, if you're if you're fortunate enough, or you bust your butt so that you make it happen to have a long career. You know, I've been doing yeah. this for about 25 years, and. Um, It's been, sometimes it's been excruciating. I've gotten really close to quitting several times. Um, But then I've sort of renewed my commitment to myself and, I guess, to my readers. Um, They've taught me everything I know. I think I was a much better mother of teenagers because of, you know, being allowed to have conversations with teenagers that were real. And more importantly than anything I said to them, I think, was I listened to them and heard... Jesus, you know, how hard their lives are. Mm-hmm. Even the kids who look like they're, they're coping well, they're under so much pressure. I mean, look at this ridiculous college entry oh scandal gosh, that we have. And these kids, they, there's a, a phrase in, in Shout, I call it the I'm fine mask. So many of our kids like plaster that I'm fine mask on their faces so tightly that they lose sight of themselves. Um, which is why we've got so many kids that have, um, that are either actively suicide or who have at least considered it. Why we have so many kids that are turning to substance abuse and other ways of numbing themselves. And, and a lot of them are the high achieving Oh, kids. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we know once you get to about 30 years old, everybody knows people who were succeeding by those cultural milestones that they're handed in school. And they, they did what they were told, they took the classes, they got the grades, they got to graduated from college, maybe even graduate school, and then they hit the wall because they had never been given the opportunities to get to know themselves, and they were always dancing to somebody else's tune, and that um, is often catastrophic.
0: Hmm. Well... Sexual violence is a topic that a lot of people are still very uncomfortable discussing, like you said, um, regardless of whether it's affected them personally or
1: not. It's because people don't know how to talk about sex in America. Right. It's everywhere. It's on screens. We use it to sell dishwashing detergent. Um, it, we, we objectify the bodies of young children in clothing that's probably not appropriate for their developmental age. But... No generation um, has ever had a parents that could consistently could talk about healthy sexuality and consent. And so when the next generation grows up, like, you know, your generation, if I may say, your parents probably didn't talk to you about it a lot. And so the challenge is hopefully you guys are the smartest generation we've had to break that bad cycle because we can't talk about sexual violence until we learn how to talk about sex.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, how do you think the reluctance to discuss these topics affects not just the victims but the perpetrators?
1: Well, you know, based on my conversations with about a half a million teenage boys, I can tell you exactly how it's tied in. They don't even know they're perpetrators. They don't know they're rapists because so many people in our culture have just— bought into the rape mythology that rape is only ever committed by the bad guy in the alley the stranger stranger danger right, right. Um, if you're a victim and you are under 18 years old 90 um, percent of those victims under 18 know their attacker 90 percent nine out of ten Often somebody they know quite well. Once you get older than 18 years old, that number, that percentage doesn't drop very far. It's like between 75 and 80 percent of those victims know their attacker. It's sometimes a really bad guy in the alley or somebody who's broken into your house, but overwhelmingly, it's the guy who sits behind you in math. And so I've talked to teenage boys, I've talked to grown men who. Now that they've learned that, you know, having sex with somebody who's incapacitated because of drugs or alcohol is illegal, because that person cannot give informed consent. Once they learn that, um, uh, just you know, being pressuring somebody into sex, that consent is supposed to be given with enthusiasm, and freely, uh, and informed, and it needs to be ongoing. And they look back on their own sexual encounters; it's heartbreaking. And I've never had a guy say, oh, I raped her. But I've had a lot of guys say, yeah, I went too far. And, and it, it's just no parent would ever let their kid get behind the wheel of a car and drive without making sure that they knew what they were doing. And actually, you know, parents are so annoying. They talk to their kids about driving constantly. Oh, left-hand turns are the most dangerous turns. Mm -hmm. We need to bring that kind of uh, loving uh, caution and information to our kids um, constantly. We can start teaching consent to two-year-olds. Nobody touches you without your permission. You don't touch anybody else without without their permission. Um, and when what I love about teenage boys, because boys are awesome, and I love men, you know, I've I've got many in my family. I have six grandsons now, because um, God's got a great sense of humor, I think, <laughs> and um, and so I'm certainly I'm not anti male. I'm 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 trying to get everybody to accept our responsibility to become informed, um, and that's that's a much better way to go through life. When you talk to teenage boys and you explain the rules of the road to them, they love to be honorable. They love to be the guy who's the helper, right? That protector, that strong, good person, good man. And they're like, "Oh, okay, I can can do that," you know. Um, And then they want to be. They love the opportunities to stand up and and um, be the good guy.
0: So these conversations are so important to have, and yet your books are often censored. Yeah, what is what is it with that?
1: I know up with that. I know what's up with that. Censoring never protects children. Um, censoring protects parents from having conversations that they don't know how to have with their kids yet. I used to, when they first started to censor my books, um, a couple of news people in a couple of places in America called me a pornographer, which really upset my mom. I thought my mom was going to hunt them down. (laughs) And um, uh, what's really pornography, what's really obscene is the rape and molestation of so many of our children. That's the obscenity. That's the abomination. Um, and But I, I, I've actually, over the years, changed a little bit of my attitude. I have a lot of love and respect for the parents who are feeling so fearful for their children that they're trying to censor the books because they love their kids as much as I love my kids. And that we can actually build a bridge um, with that love we have for our kids. How do you do that? Um, Well, one thing I always do when people tell me about a censorship attempt is I ask, does the school um, have newspapers in their library? Do the students have access to just ordinary media uh, in terms of news and information? And of course everybody says, well, yes, we want our children to have information about the world. I've never written anything in a book that they haven't read about in a newspaper. The thing is the books that I write put the way we try to do in literature, right? We try to make, we take the facts of life and we weave them in a story uh, because storytelling allows us to tell facts but also larger truths about human existence and the human heart. Um, And that's why literature, that's why we turn to literature for guidance, for wisdom, and that's why it's so easy for people to unite over stories because we had that bond, right? That, that story made our heartbeats faster. Um, so, uh, these parents uh, often well, I'd say in about 75% of the cases, when parents bring a censorship challenge against my books, the parent later withdraws it after they've read the entire book. The challenge is usually pegged to one or two descriptions or pages that they read out of context. Now, as a preacher's kid, I'm here to tell you, I can pull some lines out of the Bible oh, yeah. that if you read those out of context, your hair's going to curl. Um, but that, you, that that's why we have to read the entire story. And, it's, I, and I have a lot of respect for those parents who can come back and say, no, actually, I was wrong. I had the wrong first impression. Um, and I think that we, as adults, maybe this is some work we all need to do within our communities, neighborhoods, families, faith communities, PTOs are a great place for these conversations. And, and we, it's the best thing to do is to start out by saying, oh, this is so awkward to talk about this, this makes my stomach get tight. But you start to talk to it first, to, first with your friends about it, and you figure out the language so that you can begin to share this with your children. Because if you're a parent, um, that's your responsibility, to prepare your kids to be safe in the world.
0: They're going to have a conversation with someone, so it might as
1: well be yeah. Well, they're going to learn it for you, or they're going to learn it from pornography. Which one would you rather have?
0: So we've talked about what Speak has achieved. What is your hope for Shout?
1: Oh, golly. Well, as you and I are talking today, it's been out for two and a half days. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm still, like, I'm still like that mom leaving the hospital with a new baby in her arms. Um, I, I, I hope that it... First of all and foremost, I hope it offers comfort to people who've been hurt um, and lets them know they're not alone. And they're, they're, we are legion. There are so many survivors of different forms of sexual violence and abuse and harassment. Um, and that it wasn't your fault. And you are a good and true person. And I'm sorry you were hurt. I, that's my first hope. The second hope is that it leads to these kinds of conversations. Um, I think that that books are often really great places to begin those hard conversations. My secret hope, am I allowed to whisper that? Because traditionally I've been known as a writer of books for teens and kids, but I really hope that people give this book to their mom and their grandmothers and their aunties for Mother's Day. And then a few weeks later, maybe they should give it to their dad and their grandparent because I've talked to much older people people in their 70s and 80s who have been holding on to what feels like a shame story for decades. I once got a letter from a woman in her 80s who had been gang raped by a group of boys when she was 12, boys she went to school with, and went home broken to her mother, sobbing. And her mom's reaction, her parents, her family's reaction, was to marry her off to the next traveling salesman who came through town um, this woman, right? And she, uh, it was a terrible marriage and she was really unhappy. It was a horrible marriage for about 35 years until he died. And then her li- and then she wrote, that's when my life began. And her granddaughter had, my, her granddaughter had given her a copy of Speak. Um, and she was very grateful for it. So there are a lot of people who have been silenced for their entire lives. Um, I think this is why why literature is actually popular with adults i mean obviously it's popular with teens but we i'm sure we both know a lot of people who got really hurt when they were teenagers or something drastic went wrong and they've spent their lives since that time um like stopping the bleeding when nobody's looking but it it infects you those kinds of of traumas and um And I think sometimes adults turn to YA because it allows them, with an adult perspective, to be gentle with their teen self and look at what they went through and and hopefully do some healing. That's, I guess, the ultimate hope.
0: I really don't think that there is a woman alive who cannot relate to this book, uh, if not through their own experiences, through experiences that their friends or family members have shared with them or things that they've witnessed um and it really the same for our allies as well
1: right exactly yeah. absolutely
0: i think um and i've done a lot of my own uh advocacy with women's groups and with my female readers of my novels has related to domestic violence mm-hmm. which has not um there's no sexual violence in my books but um, some of it is almost interchangeable in some of the poems that you've written, you know, sort of the way that you feel. So I thank you very much for this book, and I think it's really important addition to anybody's bookshelf, and I hope they'll read it.
1: I really appreciate that. And I thank you
0: for being here today. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything we should say about where people can find out more about you?
1: Well, my middle name is kind of strange, Halts. Nobody can spell it. Mm -hmm. So my website, therefore, is not my name. My website is madwomanintheforest.com for lots of reasons that are boring that I won't waste time (laughs) on your podcast. But that's easier to spell than halt, certainly. Also, I'm one of those writers who loves to procrastinate on Twitter. So it's really easy to find me on Twitter or Facebook. Most social media platforms I'm wasting time on.
0: (laughs) You can find me there as well. (laughs) Thank you for
1: being here today. Thanks. I appreciate it. Good luck, everybody. Special thanks to the Library Foundation
0: for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Jessica at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash Writer in Residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.